Wait, I saw you host an Easter at your new house. Are you loving the homeowner? I love it. It's amazing. It's so cool. Like you're a full-fledged adult with like a mortgage. Uh, exactly. Exactly. I'm already like going to get new hardware. John O'Neill came over the other day. No way. Yeah. John O'Neill power washed egg off my house once in high school. Stop. Yeah, like I got egged during a party and he came over with a power washer the next day. <laughs> I'm going to start the, this is where I'm going to start the, the audio that says John O'Neill power wash my house. <laughs> like, hey, John, what's up? like I said, I know a lot about you, um, but I feel like even still, I don't even remember exactly, like you didn't grow up in Prescott, did you? From day, like from the start? I did. I did actually. Um, Cause so- we didn't. We weren't like, we didn't hang out all the time. And like, we no. didn't even like dance together. I was like, to help fill in the blanks for me. I had yeah. kind of a weird childhood. So I actually grew up in Chino. Like yes. my early That's right. And I was like barefoot on dirt roads until pretty much until elementary school. My mom was, we, my mom was in a religion that was extremely oppressive. And I wasn't supposed to be friends with anyone that was, outside of that. So I was kind of a loner in elementary school. And also at that time, my mom was married to like a really abusive man. And so I was very like mild mannered. I was really timid in elementary school. And then their divorce happened like right when I went into middle school. So probably like your memories of me as a person in the community of Prescott probably started in middle school. They totally do that's when my mom put me in dance and I started like I was able to make friends and like have people over and things like that yeah and I remember going over there and of course everyone would be like yeah I remember going to Elise's and the house being amazing one two the tanning bed like oh yeah so Williamson Valley was the house that my friends all remember and that was um because my mom remarried and yeah, there was a tanning bed in the garage. And then like when I went to college, they got a sauna and like a workout room and all these things. So oh, that, I mean, we kind of touched on it, which was one of the questions on like, how would you describe childhood, which like you said, until middle school was kind of just like, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't know how to navigate things. So I, I assume that made it tough once your mom was like, okay, now you can have friends and you can do these things. Yeah. I mean, when you go from kind of like oppressed to free, you make um, a lot of bad decisions. And so I think that was when I was like, I think middle school was okay. And then kind of in high school, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know who I am. I don't know. I don't have good moral boundaries. I don't have a good sense of like, what's (laughs) what I want out of life. Like, and I think we all kind of went through that in high school because it's just like, Coming oh, yeah. In. I mean, that's part of growing up. We're like, we don't know what to do. We want to impress whoever we want to impress. Everyone, really. Oh, my gosh. Everyone. Like, yeah. boys, girls, all of it. Like, you're just always in, you're insecure. Like, sure, I'll follow whatever the, the leader's doing or I'll follow whatever the norm. Yeah, totally. And you're just trying to find a place that you belong. I think for me, like, that journey started, like, when I was, like, 15. I had my first birthday party when I was 15. Wow. I know. It's like nuts now that I'm raising kids and I'm like, oh, that's not going to be their experience. Like we're going to celebrate these babies. But but I remember being just so like, Elise is just so sure of herself. She's so like, it just, 
it's so funny how you have that perception and maybe it's just so much insecurity um, for, from each individual person where it's like, you just assume everyone's got it figured out, but you. And so funny that that was your perception of me, because that was my perception of you, like super <laughs> confident. And then I'm like inside, of course, I think like developmentally, we're also yeah. like, we're focused on ourselves so much. We don't even see the people around us. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, was I even a kind person in high school? Like, was I even kind to people? Like, I have no I idea. Know. Not. Like, I think the same, I think the same thing. Um, where I'm like, I think I was nice. I think all of our class was actually really nice. I don't remember there being like any bullying or like, you know, mean girl situations. And like, really the only, the only thing I remember, like I talked about my podcast, which you messaged me about the, the, the ex, um, both of our exes, which we saw at our 10 year or no, it was at Dustin's at the thing. Um, but yeah, I just remember that being like the, God, you know, it's like that first feeling of like, oh, oh, okay. I feel this, I feel this like burning almost inside where it's like, oh, that is uh, like, what is that word? What am I feeling right now? And it's like, it's like anger, but like, no, rage. I, like, I can't believe that I was that person in your life. Like that person that just became villainous. And I feel <laughs> terrible because when you say like, there was no mean girl drama, like for me, there was mean girl drama, like way early on in high school with just, and it was because truly it was because I had terrible judgment and I was looking for attention from boys that I didn't really need to be looking for attention from boys that obviously had relationships with other girls. And I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> like it doesn't matter. I guess what I mean, no me, I'm talking about our class specifically, and I don't know if you are okay. as well, but I mean, we hang, no, out, with the, we hang out with the same upperclassmen, we know. Yeah, I agree. The class of 08 was chill, but I think we like, we, especially in, I don't know. I just think when I was a freshman and a sophomore, hey, I was so interested hey, in the older boys. And now I'm interested in the yeah. <laughs> And I think, um, I think it's healthy that we can, as adults, be like, we made mistakes and we were really stupid in high school. And everyone can say that. At what point, obviously you've been in oncology for how long now? I've been in oncology for six years and I've okay. been a nurse for eight years, almost eight years. Wow. Okay. So then that seems like you pretty much knew right away, I want to go into the medical field. Yeah. So my biological dad, who none of you guys met in high school, he was sick my entire life. And I don't know if you even remember, but he passed away when I was 16. I don't remember that. So yeah, because he lived in California. And so I had a relationship with him, but it was never tied into my Prescott family. I just had like my own personal relationship with my dad and a separate relationship with my mom. But he was sick my whole life. And every time I would go visit him, there was a hospital involved or a procedure or something. And um, I always felt a little helpless and um, like I really wanted to be able to help him. But I was a kid, you know, and I admired the medical people that took care of him until he passed away. And so I think that kind of hardwired a d desire to be in the medical fields early on. Was that something I assume that no parent's going to be like, you know what, you shouldn't go in the medical field. I want you to work at IHOP. Like, I'm sure your mom was like, 
Yeah, for sure. And actually I started out pre-med and that was a big push for my parents. But the thing is that like, I realized like I'm going to have to be in school for eight years before I actually get to physically touch and be with a patient. And I realized like physicians are very like high level decision makers. And sometimes they don't have the opportunity to be with patients. And I just wanted to be with people that were suffering. I just wanted to like be in the room, offer comfort, be at the bedside. So I switched to nursing. So I was like, I think nurses get the opportunity to do that a little bit more. Yeah. I took care of patients that had um, like traumatic brain injuries or spinal cord injuries. Um, and I had a few patients that had certain types of brain cancer. And those were always the most memorable patients for me. So when I had the opportunity to take a job in oncology, I was like, oh, I think I would really like that. And I, it ended up being like my favorite. I didn't know I would love it as much as I did. I kind of fell into it thinking like, oh yeah, I took care of a few oncology patients and really liked it. It's obviously very meticulous. You have to learn a lot. It's very, it's, it's intimidating. And for me too, it's like, I, I'm just weird with, with blood needles and stuff like that. So that's another whole nother thing, but just everything you have to know. So um, I feel like we both grew up to try to connect the ideas. We both grew up really creatively and like I was in dance and I excelled at language arts, but my parents being kind of the, I don't want to say pushers, but they were just like encouragers. I think they knew that like, if you're going to make money someday and support yourself, you need to be more like science and math minded. So they kind of forced my hand when it came to choosing like a science degree. But then I realized after getting through like all of the OCHEM and the hard stuff that I actually liked taking care of people. So it worked out okay. Um, And I don't think I would change anything, but I think if I were like totally free to make my own decision, that would have been like Cirque du Soleil, like let's do something completely right let's do something kind of spontaneous where it's not the same thing and it's yeah just absolutely not talented enough to make money at but like would be well it's so tough to make a make a career out of out of dance specifically and it's like if you don't have that passion that's like you must do this then I don't think I would have ever disciplined my body enough to be able to be that successful I know it's so challenging and just not only like eating habits, but just the, the workout, the, the training, the, all of it is so much. And also, yeah, what, then you can't, I mean, you could have a kid, but. Then how long is your career? Like 30 years. And then you're like, okay, well now I don't have a marketable skill anymore because my body had babies now. And I'm not as like, I don't know, people that have, there are amazing women that still like Jenna Dewan. Oh yeah. I mean, she's incredible. She is a freak nature. She's had babies and she's still, anyway. I know, she looks insane. But so you fell in love with it and immediately did you, because where are you working? What hospital? I'm at Mayo now. And I have a little bit of imposter syndrome when you said you wanted to interview me because I'm like full-time mom, part-time nurse right now. I haven't actually worked full-time since my son was born in 2019. So talk about that. What is that? Is that... Are you going to eventually, do you want to go back full time? But then are you like, mm, I don't want to get a nanny though. Like, what is that like? I think there'll be a time. I think there'll be a season in life when I go back to full time. Um, probably when the kids are, you know, school aged, but um, 
I think in the, in the type of nursing that I do, it's so emotionally demanding. And I, I, I didn't want to come home at the end of every day and only be able to provide the scraps that were left of me to my family, you know, and in, in oncology, that's really how it is. It's like, you give your heart and soul to your patients. And when you get home, it's like your family just gets like whatever is raveled and, and left. What, what are you doing now? What is the part-time, like, what is your day? What do your days look like now? So I work two days a week and I essentially do the same job I was doing full-time, except for I fill in for whoever is gone or sick or whatever. So it's basically like, it's called RN coordinator. Um, and I also float to telephone triage, but what happens is like, let's say you got diagnosed with cancer and you went let's and not say that. let's say you're the patient. How would I, yeah. how am I involved in your care? It's like, you meet the doctor and you get your diagnosis and you come up with a plan and you would meet me and like the rest of the team, which includes like, you know, social work and nutritionists and all those people. And then I am your person from diagnosis to whatever the end looks like, whether it's remission or end of life or a relapse or whatever. So I build relationships with patients. I help with like symptom management and education of their disease and helping them with like healthcare resources. Like, oh, you need home health. Like I'll set that up for you. Or your doctor thinks that you need physical therapy or there's a bunch of tests that you need done. I'll kind of facilitate your calendar and help. It's like that. It's like the behind the scenes person. And like, so obviously I'm sure, I'm, I know you can't give any numbers or, or anything, but what, if you had to estimate something in terms of percentages, once somebody gets that cancer diagnosis, like what, what percentage of the time is it like, yeah, we've got to prepare for goodbye. Oh gosh. It depends on the type of cancer. So of course, like for three years, I worked with lymphoma and certain there's over 70 types of lymphoma believe it or not there's two branches Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's and within those branches there's like over 70 subcategories and so some of them are like curable or have like an 80 percent like cure rate some of them are what we call like indolent where they're never going to go away we're never going to cure the disease it'll always come back but it's treated more like a chronic illness mm-hmm. where it's like we can, it's treatable, but not curable. Mm-hmm. So, and then there are the types that are extremely aggressive and have a very low rate of survivorship past like a five-year overall survival. So I can't, I would, that's such a hard question to answer, but um, I would say for every, every, I would say failure, but for every, every failure that there is in oncology, there's also like victory over death. So it's not all sad in oncology, um, which is why like nurses and doctors are able to always we keep doing it because we do have success. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, but it would be hard to provide a percentage. And also it seems like it depends on the type of the type of patient, like young versus old. And sometimes even the time of year, like flu season, so many of our patients would crash and burn. And it was like, yeah, so I, that also leads to another question, which is like, yeah, the, the age of the patient, did you see uh, a decent number of younger people coming in and getting diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, actually, so this week is Adolescent Young Adult Cancer Awareness Week. 
which I know it's so great that you asked that question. So in when I worked exclusively in lymphoma, um, there is a type of lymphoma that's kind of a young man's disease or a young woman's disease, and that's Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so um, I did have a good number of patients that looked like me and were in the same season of life that I'm in. Um, and those were some of my favorite patients to work with. Um, not all of those patients have a successful remission. Um, a lot of them do, but it's so cool. And it's such a privilege to like be able to identify with those people because that's where I am or I was in my life taking care of them. And they want families and they're in school and they're like just starting their careers. And they have like really unique needs that these older generations don't have like the financial burden for these young patients mm -hmm. is it's incredible. Whereas oh, someone, it's insane. Whereas yeah. someone in their sixties or seventies, they've got investments they can pull from. They've got a retirement fund they can use for medical bills. So yeah, I did work with a lot of young patients and it was, it was an honor. It was really cool. I don't know how much you play into or believe in or in the medical field, right? It's so many things are, Oh, that can lead to cancer. That can lead to cancer. That can lead to cancer. It's like, how much do you buy into that? Or is there anything where you're like, you know what, actually these things, hundred percent, we see those, uh, related to it. Like don't sleep with your phone too close to you. Don't sleep with like yes. things. Is there anything that you're like, yeah, those things are myths or yeah, those things are real. Oh, for sure. There are so many, there are so many myths related to cancer, whether it's like what you eat or what part of the world you live in. And well, not even that, like a lot of that is scientific and we know like there are certain things we can control, right? Like we know tobacco causes cancer. We know that obesity puts you at higher risk. We know that alcohol consumption, comorbidities, like a lot of stuff puts you at risk that we know about. And all of that is substantiated by research. A lot of these little, a lot of these little niche things like sugar feeds my cancer or, you know, sleeping with a cell phone, or I've heard so many really abstract things. A lot of those aren't supported by research um, or well supported by research. Maybe there's like one research study that's just kind of anecdotal and they're like, see, look, this is proof, but it's not a broad enough study to really say like, oh yeah, that is a known carcinogen. But however, there are like, we do do some type of, um, sometimes we'll end up doing helping patients navigate, like if they were veterans and they had exposure to like Agent Orange in Vietnam or even like Roundup, the weed killer, they did, they, now they know that that probably led to some malignancies down the line. So there are things like that. And there are ways that patients can kind of be compensated or pursue like, you know, recompense or litigation in those types of situations. But I would say there's a huge cloud of number one doubt that the medical medical community is like telling the truth, especially in 2020, that was really hard. Right. And there's a lot of, um, and, and, and the patients want answers, which is like, I get that. I, but if we knew what caused cancer every time, right. we wouldn't need treatment strategies because we could just avoid the cause, right? right. So, we could be all proactive about it. So, I mean, I assume then it's not so much about like, yeah, you know what, if you take these steps, obviously no one can say if you take these steps, you're going to be fine. Um, but really, you know, I probably, I would assume the number one recommendation is like, just stay on top of 
have a primary care physician, stay on top of consistent checkups, stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Cancer screening is really important. And that's something that unfortunately kind of went by the wayside in 2020 because mm-hmm. of COVID. Mm-hmm. People were canceling, you know, mammograms and like routine mm-hmm. colonoscopies and stuff. So we... I'm a little bit nervous going into this next year because I think we're going to see a climb in our cancer. Like we're going to have more cancer patients for sure. And that's because people didn't either didn't have access to or chose not to, or weren't able to do all of that screening stuff. Yeah. So what was it like working with during 2020 through COVID? I mean, it's still going on, but what, what was it like? Is it like, how is, how is it different? Well, I'm for sure not going to pretend to be like a frontline hero. Like, you know, like I never worked in the ICU or the ER. Like our friend Mo, who went out, she got basically got like deployed to the East Coast to help with all that. I for sure that was not my experience um, because I do work in such a specialty area. Mm -hmm. I was actually furloughed. I was saying that, yeah. Yeah. So because I'm supplemental, you know, and I just fill in when someone needs me. Um, they furloughed me for 11 weeks, which was the right thing to do. Cause they were protecting their full-time employees. Um, and that was, that was what they should have been doing. But as far as when I came back to work coming, like everything changed, like our patients all of a sudden were coming to appointments alone and hearing really bad news by themselves. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine getting that news alone, feeling scared, feeling like, okay, I also have to worry about this COVID thing, which there's not a vaccine for yet at the time that they were getting delivered the message, like all of it. And like, yeah, I, I, you have to be basically a therapist. I imagine. A lot of it was like, yeah, just providing like mental reassurance. But what was hard is like, you don't want to provide false information. And we knew so little in the beginning that it was like, all I can tell you is I don't know right now, but when I know, I'll let you know. And that's like not what the patients wanted to hear. And then there's like a lot of hard decision-making. For, so for example, I worked in the triage center and like, you know, when patients get chemo, their white blood cells are down and they're, they're compromised. Their immune system is compromised. Well, if you get a fever and you don't have white blood cells, that's a, that's a big deal. That's an emergency in oncology. Like you have an infection that your body cannot fight, right? And usually we just send those patients to the ER. We get a quick infectious workup. Well, when our ER was full of COVID patients and we have someone who we know doesn't have an immune system, but they might be in trouble. We were like, every day it was full of so many difficult decisions. Like, is it, should we put this person at risk by sending them to the ER full of COVID patients? Or do we monitor them closely and let them wait it out at home and hope that this really isn't a serious infection. It was really hard. It was really hard. It was- I, I wonder what, what do you do specifically in relation to mental health? Like you said, especially when you were working five days a week, not to bring that home because it is very, very heavy and emotionally draining. I assume a lot of families are like, well, just give us some hope, give us the answers. And you don't want to give them false hope, but you don't want to be bleak and be like, well, it's, no, it's not really bad. Right. You don't want to be callous. You don't want to lose your compassion, but just having that same conversation over and over, it can be taxing and more so for the physicians, I would say. But for me, like I'm a, I'm a person of faith and I, I found Jesus my senior year of high school, actually thanks to Dustin, 
which is a great story. I'll have to tell you sometime, but, um, that has been what like saves me. Like that's what gives me hope. And that's like, I tap into my relationship with Jesus when I'm feeling really spent. And he told us to do that. Like come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. And so that is what got me through 2020. And I was stayed really connected with my church on zoom. And I had a great community of like, like-minded people, like just checking on me and praying for me. And I think the community piece is like important and it's important to make community when physical proximity is taken away from you. Like that's our responsibility is to still push for community because we're meant to live in community. We're not meant to live the way 2020 felt. And there's so much, you just, that's where your purpose is then. It's like, I feel like you're all impacting each other and it's not like surfacey. It's not like, okay, well, whose party are we going to over this week or over the weekend or where are we going over the weekend? And that's what we're living for. It's like, you have this drive, this passion all together. And that's so powerful. So I'm so glad you found that. Me too. And I think what's different about like our adult communities is that they're not exclusive. I think that's how we have to get through isolation is like by welcoming people into what we already have. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, it's, it's, I think it is actually kind of easy. And I think the more that like with social media, it can be challenging both ways where it's like, while there's a lot of bullying, there's a lot of trolling, there's a lot of this, but I also think that because there's so much of that, there's these lights that continue to be shined on it by celebrities and, and whatnot to be like, this is not okay. Like, I think some of the, like Demi Lovato did did such a good job of shining light on bullying and mental health and substance abuse issues and all of that to be like, guys, like this is happening everywhere. Let's not let this continue. People can give moms, dads, the tools, big, here's what to look out for. Here's what to put on kids' phones. Here's all of these things. Yeah. We're all learning how to like harness the power of social media and we all use it differently. I like, my prayer is that we're all using it to better the world and that like we're not using it to troll or bully or whatever if you see something you don't like just keep scrolling if you see something you like support it you know oh yeah and that's that's like power of the mind like you have to train your brain to be able to do that like I'm being intentional I'm spending my time to do this and I am why am I doing this why am I posting this like what is my intention here am I seeking validation am I seeking what what am I hoping for and I feel like, yeah, a lot of times it's just on autopilot. And there's, of, of course, with anything new, it's like, yeah, I don't know how that's going to affect people. There's obviously been several documentaries. I remember the most recent one on Netflix was very enlightening and not yeah. surprising at all, just the way they develop things. And thank goodness, though, that we continue to be informed. Like, you are going to be well-equipped to educate your children and raise them very intentionally, mm-hmm. whereas when we were growing up, it was right in that in-between phase. Like the internet came out in the nineties and like, you know, where like, I remember, I remember wanting your MySpace page so bad. Wanting my MySpace page? Yeah. You like always had the cutest background and Ah! somehow you would like put music on your page. And I was like, that's so revolutionary. I want to do that too. Dude, I remember that, that addition, the, the being able to add music and like the top eight and like, you're like, oh, this person annoyed me out there out of the top eight. Oh yeah, top eight. eight. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. What's Tom up to? Where is he now? I don't know, but that was just not a good way to do social media. Like top eight, like you're ranking your friends. Like, don't you think that was like the start of just this 
something that beca could has become really ugly in some people's lives like oh competitive very like I I value this over this like pinning people against each other myself to everybody else on social media exactly exactly good well again thank you I will let uh your husband have a break now and you can go you. be mom again and I am just glad that we got to chat seriously I know I'm really proud of you and I'm glad you're doing well and I really enjoyed like learning more about you and listening to the podcast and all the stuff you went through. Oh my gosh. The trauma episode had me <laughs> I like, know, I know. And you just said, we never felt empowered to stand up for what we thought was wrong or never knew like I could, we could or anything. And that's, you know, and women are so like, I think we're raised to be so polite that we sometimes don't feel like we can get out of those situations. Have you seen the movie promising young woman? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. So good. That was such a good conversation starter for me and my husband. Cause it's like, she said no in many different ways, but she said no. And she was always polite. She tried to be polite and that wasn't enough. You have to be, you have to be rude sometimes, which is so hard for women. Cause it's like, we're, we're nurturing people. We want to, yeah. Like we want to comfort people. We want to make sure people have what they want and be, feel safe and feel comfortable. Da, yeah. da, da, even at our own expense. And something I wanted to share with you that made me, when I would listen to your podcast, I was like, I should tell her this. And you don't have to put this on the thing. You can't, if you want, but you don't have to. But when I was um, like still in diapers, I was molested by a family member and I went through counseling and, you know, I, I compartmentalized it in a healthy way. And, but it, it affected me when I started having sex because I was like, um, pre-sexual, like I, all of those mysteries were like gone, you know? And so I didn't think once I got through high school and kind of like, okay, figuring out like what my sexuality looks like as a child who's been sexually abused, blah, blah, Fast forward, totally healthy sexual relationship with people, totally healthy relationship with my husband, no trauma, like compartmentalized it great, felt like I was really at peace with it, had a child. And all of a sudden I am looking at my son, I am changing his diapers and I am like, how in the world can someone do this to a child? It was such a weird trigger for me because I was on like the complete other side of it now where I was the parent. And so I had to like rehash a lot of that with my mom, but through her eyes, mom, what, it, how did you find out? How did you feel when you heard that that happened to me? How did you know and teach to me to protect myself in the future? It was just like, so interesting to like reprocess that as a parent. And I think, I mean, at that, what happened to you? I'm so, so sorry. And that's, I understand. And I don't like that either when people are, I'm so sorry. It's like, uh, it doesn't matter. It, it is what it is. It's fine. Like I, that doesn't help anything. It doesn't hurt me, but it, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different because I was like older and enough to like, know, have awareness, right. Enough to have been educated to make a different, I'm not even make a different choice would be like, I fucking know, like that is not okay. Do yeah. not touch me there and feel confident and empowered to do so. And obviously you're a kid, you're in diapers still. Like, of course you can't say anything. Like, that's so scary. Well, and I think what's different is like, I didn't know to be ashamed. I didn't know it was bad or wrong, but you, at the age that it happened to you, you felt shame, which was totally misplaced. Like you didn't do anything wrong. Like, but it's interesting that it, 
like that from that point on, like nothing's the same. And I didn't realize that like the moment that happened, like nothing would be the same in my life because it felt so normal for so long until I had kids. So I kind of was like, when I was hearing that that happened to you, I'm like, wow, that happened to her when she was 14. And I wonder how many times she has been re-triggered by sexual experiences. And that event just impacted her the rest of her life. It is like you said, it's so random. Like it'll come up and it's like, oh my gosh, whoa. Oh, I'm really triggered right now. Like, I don't know why, but something is not right. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it is wild how, how that happens. There's so many correlations between the profession they choose where they're around kids and, uh, you know, young women, whatever it is, young women, young, young it, it's, it's just, I don't know. And you don't want to infringe on people's rights to be like, well, you're, we're going to have routine like computer searches, or you're all going to be recorded all the time. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, obviously it's, hard background catch, checks. it's hard to catch predators because they, they, they can look just like they can be moms and dads. That's what's really sick. And now that I'm a mom, I'm like, Ugh, how could you hurt a child and have a child? How like it's, it's gross. It's gross. And also just be grateful that like, I, I'm grateful that I never have had a thought that I would have to like that, that I would have to be ashamed of where I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to not be around kids or I need to make sure that I, I cannot even imagine having those thoughts. So the fact that anyone has those thoughts, it's, it's absolutely repulsive and disgusting. And like, I, I don't get it, but at the same point, I'm like, okay, well, I'm grateful that I don't get it. And I'm grateful that I don't have to have those thoughts and like turn it off or go to a psychologist to be like, here are these weird things I'm thinking of and wanting. Like, but I don't have perverted thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. And anyway, part of again, you protect your mind from that, Dev. Like part of that is like you make a conscious choice to like guard yourself from thoughts like that. Like, I don't think- right we all have to guard ourselves from like pedophilia. Like hopefully that doesn't even enter the realm of possibility, but like. Right. But yeah, just not allowing it. I, I, that's fair. Like having a, a strong mind to be able, similar with anything where it's like, oh, my friend is dating this dude. I'm not going to like that dude. <laughs> you just don't, your brain, to, your brain, you're like, I'm not going to let my brain think that. Which like, obviously in high school, I did not have that because I had a crush on every single one of my friend's brothers going full circle back to our ex, like that is a learned skill, like controlling impulses and having self-control over your mind and your body. Totally. So yeah, great way to come full circle. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you. And don't, don't let me look stupid. Stop. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to post the whole thing. Just put it up. <laughs> the breaks like, oh God. All I right. Will I will not. Um, okay. Well, I will talk to you soon. Yeah, thank, thank you, you again. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.